You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26ers, welcome to another episode of the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Curtis Schoon. Curtis is an independent documentary filmmaker, writer, producer, and executive director of the Coleman Alexander Young II Educational Foundation. Curtis spent his formative years in Hollis, Queens, in what he describes as a stable home environment, but he had a fascination with street life. He eventually ended up on trial for multiple felonies and made his way to college in an effort to turn things around. Curtis later developed an interest in screenwriting, but while writing his second screenplay, he became a suspect in a high-profile crime. He then turned his efforts to clearing his own name, and through the process, he was introduced to the world of media and entertainment. Curtis would go on to secure opportunities in both print and television, and he produced Black, White, and Blue, an independent documentary about race, police, and politics in America. Today, he is channeling his professional and personal experiences to provide positive opportunities for young people. In his role as a foundation executive director, Curtis aims to empower Detroit youth by providing opportunities for them to develop as entrepreneurs. Now, you may have heard me say this before. While we 26ers might share certain traits, we are not a monolith. Our guests bring their own opinions to the show, sometimes more strongly than others. And Curtis did just that. So with that in mind, please take a listen and enjoy. Curtis, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Mm -hmm. So let me just say this, and it's not often that like I share the pre-production, the conversations that DeMarcus and I have about guests, but he said repeatedly, he's like, I think you're going to have an interesting conversation with Curtis. So I don't know how to take that. (laughs) (laughs) But we're about to find out, aren't we? Yes, we are. Excited to have you. I mean, I know some of your story, of course. Um, from the research that's been conducted, but um, I'm I'm ready to hear it from the man himself. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready to give it to you. <laughs> All right, so tell me, who is Curtis Schoon? Curtis Schoon is a, a guy who grew up in Queens, New York. Um, I came of age in the 80s, so uh, I learned some hard life lessons. The 80s were a tumultuous time in New York, very violent, cracks, so on and so forth. In that period, um, heavily influenced the music that now influences the world, mm-hmm. you know, and it influenced me to some degree. From there, I became um, a mental health professional, book contributor, journalist, documentary filmmaker. Am I forgetting anything? Philanthropist, political um, strategist. I think that about covers it. So you wear many hats. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So let's let's talk about your origins here in New York because a mm-hmm. lot of times people come on the show and they mention that they grew up in Queens or the Bronx or Brooklyn in the eighties or the early nineties and they talk about, oh, I grew up in NYCHA. Like, you know, I was in the project, so we didn't have anything. Now your story is different, right? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in a house. I mean, Queens mm-hmm. is pretty much the middle middle class of New York City, mm-hmm. like you know, um, we used to get knocked for being um, living in houses with backyards mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of middle class, and um, that worked against us because when the drugs came, you know, the more affluent your clientele, the more money you stand to make. Mm-hmm. So while people in Brooklyn and the Bronx had to wait for the first and the fifteenth to see a sales boom. When you got a working class community, 
is what you had in Queens. They they had money all the time to spend on drugs. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think the, the drug dealers and kingpins in Queens became so prominent, like the Supreme Team and Fat Cat and, and, and the rest of them. It's not so much that they were smarter than anybody, but they were just surrounded by more money. Mm -hmm. And then when you went down south, it was even more money down there still. So they made even more money there. So success, whether you're doing good things or bad things, have a lot to do with timing mm -hmm. and place. Um, I like to call it the X factor. I've done a lot of things. I've succeeded at a lot of things. And, and make no mistake about it, you know, in all honesty, with very little modesty, I think I'm a pretty smart guy. But mm -hmm. intelligence alone can't take credit for that. Right. There's other contributing factors. And I acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was your family structure like growing up? Mom, stepfather, stepbrothers, and stepbrother and stepsisters for a period and until they left. Then it was just me, my sister, and uh, my brother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you grew up going to Catholic school? Yeah, correct? yeah, right. for sure. So private yeah. school, student, pretty stable, yeah, stable family home. structure. Yeah. Um, but there was an allure to a different lifestyle for you. Um, I'm an action junkie, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'm a risk taker. I'm calculated with the risk I take. I chase that high. I don't get, I don't use drugs, but I, I need an adrenaline rush, mm -hmm. even now at my age. So what drew you besides just the, the action? Because I would think growing up in that family structure, you were insulated and isolated as a kid from certain things. Well, it depends, you know, because I didn't really have a, a close relationship with my stepfather. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll tell anybody, he wasn't abusive. He was a provider and all that, but he didn't spend much time with me. And for me, the streets was more or less a rite of passage. You know, like in, in African societies, they send the boys out into the, the jungle mm -hmm. to prove their courage and so on and so forth. I looked at the streets in that, in that manner. Like, I could prove myself. It was, it, was, it was daring, you know, it was dangerous, so it attracted me. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how old were you when you, start to f when you started to feel that pull? Man, I was young. I was real young. Uh, first, I started, um, I don't want to say praying on, but I started manipulating people around me when I was maybe about nine or ten years old. You know, there was a dude on the corner of my block named Babyface, and he would go steal money out of his mother's purse, and I always had something to sell him. Baseball cards, comic books, you know? <laughs> I'm just saying. You know what I mean? Like, I knew where he was getting the money, but I was waiting on him. Like, mm -hmm. what you got? Look at these baseball cards I got. I mean, now that I'm in mental health, I understand he's what we would call a consumer now. Mm -hmm. He definitely had a diagnosis, but I'm nine, 10 years old. I'm not thinking like that. Right. I need money myself. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, I... I would sell them all kinds of stuff. I'd sell them in. He'd buy anything I had to sell. You know what I mean? But, so it, it actually kind of started around then. And then I started delivering newspapers. And I took the newspaper money and I started buying fireworks. Um, in the summer of 76, I, I remember going to Canal Street, taking the train, bus and train. Now, keep in mind, I'm not even 12 years old mm -hmm. yet, right? And I, I take the train to Canal Street. Because that's in Chinatown. I did my research, but I'd never been there. And I saw the Chinese writing on the fireworks. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go down there. Don't know where I'm going to go. So I'm walking around Chinatown. And 
I don't know where I'm going. I'm looking around. 11 years old, right? Got this money for my newspapers and for Babyface in my pocket. <laughs> and and, and uh, some white boy said, you looking for fireworks? And I was like, yeah, because, you know, Little Italy is adjacent yeah. to Chinatown. So little Italian dudes. I might have been, I was like 11. They might have been like 15 or 16. So they take me over to a parking lot. And we in the parking lot and I'm buying these. Uh, mat, the, the mat of firecrackers was like uh, $6. It's 80 packs at 25 cents a pack. You get $20. So, you know, you make $14 on it. Mm-hmm. A gross of bottle rockets was $6. And you get 12 and you sell them for a dollar each. You double up. So I'm, I might have bought a mat and two grosses. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started hustling. Yeah, just like that. So did it intensify into other things? Because for me, I'm like, all right. You know, like maybe your, your parents didn't I, know that you were buying and flipping fireworks, but... Yeah, I, you you know, I'm going to tell you like I tell everybody, right? I have no convictions, mm-hmm. right? And because I have no convictions and nothing was ever proven against me in a court of law, I damn sure ain't going to admit it for free. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, you know Aren't we out of the statute of limitations? Shouldn't we be? Yo, but you I, get it. I, I get it. I'm not giving people the, the, the gun to shoot No, me, I hear you. you. Know? I hear as you. far as I'm concerned, I've never done anything. You well, sold baseball cards? Watermelons, Christmas fireworks. trees, fireworks. Uh, what else did I sell? DVDs? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, but... Anything else? I, I don't know nothing about that. Listen, you know, I'm with that approach. Yeah, I understand it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are just, you know, I give up a lot of my story, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't even believe how much I don't give up. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are too forthcoming with personal detail, not understanding how there's always somebody sitting around studying ways to use that against you, mm-hmm. and especially with the moves that I make that are that are legal and political. Yeah. Some of the things I talk about, I talk about deliberately because one thing I learned from the great Don King is that uh, if you put your business out there, it kind of takes it away from your opposition and you get to put your own spin on it before they do. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want the first time people hear that I have a checkered past to be in a press release that somebody else did. Mm -hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I talk about a lot of things. But I only go with so far. I hear you. I hear you. Mm-hmm. So in the streets, in a way, as a kid, seeking the action, making your own money. Um, but you decided to go to Hampton, um, right? Yeah, I did. But I was a 22-year-old freshman. Really? So you waited to go to school? I didn't really wait. You know, I wasn't thinking about school. Before that, I went to Brooklyn Tech. Yeah. I've always been smart. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, for real. But again, the streets was calling me. And I had a lack of... um a lack of guidance. Just earlier today, I was speaking to someone and said, yo, you know, if, and I, I'm not blaming my parents, but I understand the importance of parental involvement mm-hmm. in every facet of their child's life. Not, you're not just supposed to raise them and get them uh, shelter, food, and clothing. You got to give them a, uh, a playbook to navigate life. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever gave me that. And I, I don't I don't hold my parents responsible because I'm mature enough to understand that they didn't know themselves. Right. You did? Mm-hmm. So so I'm not mad at them. It's just for me to do better than them. That's all. And I think I have. You know, my son's an entrepreneur, my daughter's an attorney. So yeah, me with with all the things I've been through, my kids are all right. Mm-hmm. And and I got both of my kids, I mean, they got different parents, but 
they still turned out good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because I kind of knew what to do for them by what I lacked. You understand mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. And again, I I don't I don't hold anything against anybody. And I I take ownership for the choices I made. Cause I I was very aware of everything I was doing, and never in my life did I do wrong and think it was right. Mm -hmm. Never. I I don't know if that's good or bad because I did wrong and knew it was wrong and it was okay with me. You understand what I'm saying? A lot of people make up excuses, but yeah, I went to Hampton because I was actually um, on trial in Queens, in, in Long Island City at the time, um, part AP6 with Judge Pearl Appleman. And, and I was on trial for six B felonies. I was facing eight and a third to 25. Wow. And um, I was 21 years old. But knowing that the trial was coming up, I went and applied to, to a college to get my lawyer something to work with in case. Really? I got convicted. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. a forward thinker, big time. Uh, strategy is my thing, you understand? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, went, I went down. I had originally went to Hampton in 84 on another mission and discovered the school. It was called Hampton Institute at the time. Mm -hmm. So I won't ask you what the other mission was. Uh, but the other but... mission is what got me in trouble where I had <laughs> I went to trial, right? Okay. But we, we go, you figured out what I tell you. But yeah, so I was down there in Hampton in, in 84, and um I wanted to go, you know, on the campus. I asked one of the locals to take me and my my, my boys to the campus so we could check out some girls, you know. We mm -hmm. got 20 years old, 19, whatever. And I had an epiphany of sorts when I was on the campus. Instead of looking at the girls, I was like, man, this is where I really belong. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I continued what I went down there for, went back to New York, got in trouble. But when I was on trial, I thought about Hampton. I said, let me apply to Hampton. And I got accepted. So when I, when I were at the end of my trial, I was acquitted of five counts and convicted of felonious assault. And I appealed the conviction. Mm -hmm. And I was released contingent upon me going to school because my lawyer argued that, um, you know, I was accepted in college. I would be out of New York. I wouldn't be a problem here. And, you know, why deprive me of the opportunity to get my life together since mm -hmm. I had a strong case and had appeal. And the judge granted it and continued bail, and I went to Hampton. Yeah. And, and, I also want to say, people talk about how how somebody is so young and they're a baby. When I went to trial, I was 21, and when I when I went to Hampton that fall, I turned 22. Mm -hmm. I paid for my own lawyers. Never even told my mother. I would come home from court and tell her what's going on. She, didn't, I didn't even want her in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. I dealt with that myself, you know. And I'd be amazed at dudes that get arrested and. The first thing they do, they grown men and be looking in the back to see their mother in the courtroom. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, your mother wasn't with you when you did that. Me personally, again, I, I don't want to expose people I care about or people who care about me to the drama that I voluntarily put myself in, mm -hmm. you know? And, and um, I wouldn't take my mom, my wife, or kids for the ride. You know what I mean? Like, it's bad enough I'm doing it on their time, on their watch, to mm -hmm. take them through it. I don't feel there's anything honorable about any of that. I don't think there's a real man honor code anymore. So much things that's not very manly in my eye are acceptable. Mm -hmm. Like what? 
Just everything, all the complaining and all that. Ain't nothing to complain about. Goddamn, make something happen, man. Complaining to me not to be sexist or chauvinistic. That's for women and children. It ain't for men. Men got to go make it happen. I don't want to hear no man complaining about the white man, about this, white suppression. I don't want to hear nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist. My thing is like, what you going to do? You understand? Like, when I see people, especially like on social media, White people kind of live in a lot of black people's head rent-free. They identify their blackness in direct opposition to whatever white people like, want. Whatever they want, we got to want the opposite because that's how we define blackness. Because mm-hmm. constantly, I don't think about white people. I don't, I don't think about nobody until they get in my way. Mm-hmm. And then I figure out how to get them out the way. And that's it, you know? So, yeah, a, a lot of things that I see... And a lot of dudes do too much talking anyway. To me, you got to you gotta earn the right to speak and be heard. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, they ain't got no points on the board. So what you talking about? You, you understand what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Like, what have you done? How are you so sure that what you're thinking is right? Have you accomplished anything, anywhere of note? What is your reference point? So what, you read some books that Dr. Henry Clark wrote or whatever, man, or J.A. Rogers. Like, I hear all of this stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? All of these like wannabe professors, <laughs> just like, yo, it's just it's just weird to me. Like they can quote everybody and everything, they just can't do nothing. You know, and it's funny you should bring that up because there's two things we talk about on this show often, and one is that we are about highlighting the stories of Black and brown folks. Mm -hmm. And we speak to our unique hurdles, but one of the the pillars of the show is we can speak to it, but we don't stay there, Mm -hmm. right? It it is we acknowledge that there are things. Um, structural inequality, racism, et cetera, that we may have to, or we definitely at some point in our lives have had to overcome. We have to achieve in spite of, and how do we provide the education mm-hmm. and tactics to navigate our unique experiences and difficulties? So um, that's one thing that came out of what you said that I thought about. And the other thing is we live in this culture where it's about optics, oh, appearing yeah. like you're an expert on something, appearing oh, like you're successful, man. wanting the instant success, putting it out there in shiny format for Instagram or Facebook. But the people who are like really doing the work are few and far between. Yeah. And, 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 and also, I think um, the whole concept of equality has been perverted. Mm-hmm. In what way? People think that everybody's the same, and they're not. Everyone has different different skill sets, different potentials, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And just because you should have equal opportunity to take your shot doesn't mean you got the chance, the same chance to have the same outcome. Mm-hmm. I think we all got to be, you know, realistic with who we are and what's within our capabilities and delusion. Got people competing with with everybody else. I compete with nobody mm-hmm. but myself. The only best I want to be is my last best. Like literally, and not in a bad way, but no one matters mm-hmm. when it comes to the goals I set. I don't. I don't even think about yo man. He got an eighty five, so I gotta get an eighty six. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I think a lot of people, man, they just they just focus on others and what they're doing too much. You got to run your own race. Mm-hmm. So speaking that, that takes me back to actually, takes me to my next question about the Hampton experience. Mm-hmm. So you, you went to Hampton. I did. You took it seriously when you were there? No, or was I did it not. just So what, what were you doing? Because it's, it's hard enough being at the HBCU in general, yeah. and you made the decision as a strategy. Yeah, um, a legal strategy. Yeah. 
But before the year was, I mean, as soon as the year was over, I got in more trouble. I got arrested in D.C. with some, um, I had met two guys, one from D.C. and one from Baltimore. On campus? Yeah, or? on campus, mm-hmm. on campus. And, um, you know, they took me back to their cities. And, man, I was just like, you know, the funniest thing is when I was registering for, for classes, some dudes from Queens was down there. I think I had known them from PAL or something. They literally thought that I was on the run hiding out at campus. Like, yo, really? Honestly, yeah. I mean, I didn't realize my reputation was that bad. <laughs> you know, I was like, damn, what made them think that? You know what I mean? But then if I really, now that I think about it, I could understand what made them think that. But at that time, I was like, what made them think that? You know, but so I guess the word got, and then, you know, I used to wear a lot of, um, not a lot, but I used to wear jewelry and stuff back then. So I was standing out, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, the big pieces and the chains and all. Yeah, I, I, I was looking to roll the part. So, and actually being in Virginia made me stop wearing gaudy jewelry. Really? Why is that? Because everywhere I went, everybody was looking at me. And it was cool when I was doing it in New York because there was other people mm-hmm. like that. But down there, it just didn't. It, I stood out too much. I didn't like that. But were you, because it, it brings me to my point, right? They say that Hampton literally was Hillman. Like what a different world was based off of. So there are kids there who, there are kids there who come from money, their legacy, third generation. A lot. You know, I, I grad, those, those upper echelon. And there are kids who are just first generation trying to make it happen. But you, you ended up there but, as a part of a plan, right? Yep. So, so your whole, I can just tell that the energy and swag probably wasn't matching no, most people. It wasn't. And then and you I was older. Yeah, and you were older. So then mm-hmm. you add the the style to that. Was it what were you taking it off because you felt uncomfortable? Or were you taking it off because you just wanted to blend in and keep a little profile? Both. Okay. Both. By feeling uncomfortable, mm-hmm. I thought about how I was standing out and the implications okay. of that. And then I was like, mm-hmm. and I took it off. Um it was it was interesting because prior to the emergence of the hip hop gangster and all that, you know, the street guys were the real influence mm-hmm. among the young people because they were brazen, you know, and adventurous and had swag or whatever. And a lot of people on that campus, not a lot, but there was a few, especially the ones from New York. You know, like I, I imagine it's like this with every place. But any place that has a reputation for anything, people who don't necessarily um, deserve that reputation, when they get far removed from that place, they assume it. They assume mm-hmm. it. You know, like I'm sure there's some some lames from from Compton talking about their Crips <laughs> and blood. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And same thing with New York. Every place else, and they misrepresented. So I saw them down there, and they 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 was you know in character, but. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I met one guy down there, and he wasn't even in school. His name is Peter Hall, and he's deceased now. He's out of Jersey, but he's actually the guy that got Kemba Smith. Mm. Are you familiar with the case yes, of Kemba yes. Smith? I know Kemba. Really? And Kemba, Kemba washed my bed, my son, when he was a toddler at during Freaknik, so me and Pete could run around <laughs> one night. You know what I mean? Oh, you brought it back with Freaknik. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but- I left my son in the embassy suite with Kemba <laughs> and me. <laughs> they were sleeping in the bed together. Me and Pete was gone. You know what I mean? But yeah, I know Kemba. And I know the guy that got her in trouble. Mm-hmm. And um, those kids were good kids. I never bothered with them. I used to talk to Pete like, yo, man. You know, I like challenges. Mm-hmm. 
to me, he was like hunting sheep on campus, not to be disrespectful to anybody, but I don't get off on that. I, I go I go at other alphas. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't take advantage of the weak. So, but that's what he was doing. Now he was like 10 years older than Kemba, got him mixed up in in everything that he was doing. Um, he had told me that Kemba's next door neighbor was a Secret Service agent. And her mother and father, when they met Peter, they wanted him out of her life. So they went to the Secret Service agent next door and gave him the plate numbers and all. And it started an investigation on Peter. And um, somehow, Kemba was observed doing different things with Peter, and she was facing time. That's why, I mean, they fought for her because she's their child. But they fought hard because they know they initiated the process mm. that got her arrested. Mm. You know, and that's a lot to deal with as a parent. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, and a lot of people don't know that part of the story. I didn't know that part of yeah, the story. Yeah, you know, but yeah, but I, my life is cross-sectional with so many people who've been in the headlines and stuff that I knew on a personal basis. And I end up having certain experiences and things that that's not part of public knowledge. And that's also why I don't really pay attention to the news. Mm -hmm. Because when you've been in the mix, see, like, they got this new Malcolm X documentary out, and everybody's watching it, and all of a sudden, everybody's an expert on Malcolm. But I've made documentaries. And what I understand is that when you write a book or you make a documentary or a movie, you have the power to shape the narrative and tell history in a way that you when it presented. Mm -hmm. So you can have one documentary about Malcolm that makes him look like a superhero. And you can have another documentary about Malcolm that makes him look like a con man. And they can all be telling the truth. Mm -hmm. It depends on what truth you want to present and which one you emphasize. Because none of us are um, flawless. You understand? There's people who would tell you that I'm a good guy salt of the earth. You understand what I'm saying? And then there's people who would tell you the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And who's lying and who's telling the truth? And maybe some truth to all of that. You understand what I'm mm-hmm. saying? But we're not really mature in our in the way we receive information. We want somebody to be good all the time. We want perfection in people. And it, it just isn't there. We want perfection in people. And then when the real is is told. Then we can't deal with we it. We can't deal. We, we can't well, DeMarcus deal. and I were actually having this conversation about MLK. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that have been discussed um, in, in certain articles and stories, but it's never really been a focus on parts of his personal life that would tarnish mm-hmm. the, the image of this clergy and, you know, face of the civil rights movement, et cetera. Yeah. His right-hand man, Ralph Abernathy, told it all. Well, I told a lot. Mm-hmm. And it, it just got... Swept yeah. under the, and that was his right hand man. People saying, "What is he jealous?" And this, uh, but a lot when it comes to personalities, especially deceased personalities, there's a fight for control of the narrative, mm-hmm. and you have to watch who's trying to control it and ask yourself why. It's not so much about discrediting people. I don't care that that Martin was sleeping with a bunch of women. Mm-hmm. A lot of people might, you know, he's a preacher, he's a hypocrite. What about his wife? I, those things don't matter to me. The big picture is he did what he did. And I'm no fan of the civil rights movement, but I am a fan of results. And you can't deny the results that he got for what he set out Mm -hmm. to do. Whether you agree with the results or criticize integration or whatever, he set out to do something and he did it. 
he said he feared he uh, integrated his people into a burning house. So it sounds like he, in hindsight, he was having regrets. But fact remains, he did what he set out to do. And when you are a doer, even when you don't agree with what's being done, you recognize that and you you salute it. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, I just got suspended on Twitter because I've been talking about Malcolm X. Mm. I'm not a big fan of Malcolm X. Why is that? Because to me, and, and it's not that I don't like Malcolm X. I just don't see what the big deal is because I'm a doer, right? To me, when they give Malcolm credit for doing things for Black people, I feel they're conflating a little bit because he did great things for the nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. I acknowledge that. As the nation of Islam, he was perhaps their greatest minister. No doubt about it. Recruited Muhammad Ali, swole their ranks. I think people in the nation should be celebrating Malcolm. But if you say he did things for Black people, I'm going to ask you, what did he do? Mm -hmm. You you know, we can point to what he did for the nation, but what did he do for Black people? All right, so he made some good speeches. He, He was a hell of a debater. Made some white people look crazy at Ivy League schools and Oxford and all this. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. We're the tangibles with that. I see none. And as a man, and again, because I'm partial to women and children, I think about his wife and kids. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I'm not going to judge him. I'm going to tell you this, though. I couldn't have taken my wife and kids on that ride. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have done that. And just being the type of man that I am, I'm looking at him a different way. Because I'm saying, who does that? You know Again, not to disparage him, but after he left the nation, he didn't even have a home for his wife and kids. He had no resources. People are saying, and we're not knocking him for that. A lot of us don't have resources. I told you I was selling DVDs. I didn't have resources then. You're not a bad person for not having resources. But you don't have resources. You're not a threat to the U.S. government. The CIA didn't kill you. See, and we need that white validation that this man is so big that that whitey had to take him out. And we construct this this fiction to justify all this groveling that we got for somebody that's gonna, that we think did something or is gonna do something that we're afraid to do for ourselves. And that's the part that I don't like. Mm-hmm. So, my hero in all of it is Betty Shabazz. Mm. Absolutely. She, all this talk about strong black woman, she is it. So I think that's a good segue back into your story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we left off you go, going to Hampton. Ended up getting in some some more trouble in DC, yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. and had some other in, interactions with the, the justice system. Yeah, um, I've been arrested about six or seven times. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember. Um, I've had cases. I've been to trial. I've dismissed cases in, in lineups, the grand jury, um, taking lie detector tests. Um, yeah, a, a lot of different experiences. Fortunately, it all worked out for mm-hmm. me. And you made your way into the world of film, television, and journalism, mm-hmm. as well as publishing, book publishing. How did that happen? Okay. How do you go from Hampton to okay, I, 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 leaving Hampton, beating charges, and now being this guy in media and entertainment? Uh, look, you know, um, I say, I have a saying that I live by, and, and I, I came to this conclusion after reading The Art of War. There's a chapter in The Art of War about spies and reverse spies. And after reading it, and let me also say this, a lot of brothers like to read The 48 Laws of Power and stuff. I find that book to be more Eurocentric mm-hmm. and to help you understand their mind state, very manipulative and 
cutthroat, and so on and so forth. But the art of war, which is Chinese, Asian, was more spiritual to me. And my takeaway from reading that chapter was a blessing and a curse are one and the same, the difference being in the application. That was my interpretation of what I read in the book. So as a rule, what, whatever happens to me, even if it seems negative, I figure out how to use it as a positive. So now to answer your question, in October of uh, 2002, I was accused of a high-profile crime. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there, and most people would probably just be scared to death, like, oh, my God, this is it. It's over. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that for a minute. Then I was like, wait a minute. This is a gold mine. You know, the hustler in me kicked in. I was like, yo, how could I use this? Hey, by talking to me, I'm talking about me. I'm walking past newsstands and my name is on the front page. I'm just like, man, they're talking about me. I said, all right. So I pitched Playboy. And um, the features editor at the time was Chris Napolitano. And they had a submission email. And I don't do anything by the rules. Mm-hmm. I'm on the I'm unorthodox. You look at that word, my picture's right there. You I know? do that in the first five minutes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I emailed them. Instead of submitting an uh, article, I tell them, listen, this is who I am. This is what I'm accused of. And I'm willing to tell you the story and I haven't talked to anybody. And he emailed me back. He said, in, in less than a week, he said, this is one of the more curious emails I've ever received. Right? <laughs> so... So we went back and forth, and he was gauging my intellect. I could tell. I know I know what people are looking for, so I give it to him. So I'm wowing him with my wordplay and all that. And we got on the phone, and he talked to me. He said, you know what? I want to do this story, man. But I think, he said, I'm going to take it to my editors, but I think you should be the one to pitch it. So he set up the conference call, and, and I, I, I pitched it to them and over the phone. And when I, I was done, I remember one of my selling points was they wanted to put Blue Cantrell in Playboy because mm-hmm. they were trying to expand into urban, again, timing. And I told them if they told my story, it'll get them more urban readers than Blue Cantrell ever could. And by the time I was done, all I heard was people on, because there were people in Chicago and somewhere else, they were all on the phone. All I heard was like, wow, what a story. And somebody said, what a life. Yo, I almost mm-hmm. bust out laughing, right? <laughs> Yo, and then they, they did the story. So once they agreed, I said, yeah, I want to write something. So I've never formally trained as a journalist, but I've been communicating with him in the emails. So he knew I could write. So I wrote my first piece. It was called Framed and Defamed. It was a thousand-word sidebar to accompany the article that was written by Frank Owens. Mm-hmm. And um, I got paid, I think it was like $2 a word for it or something. But there's so many people with journalism degrees that never got paid for writing right. anything. You know, so but so to me, that was, a, that was an accomplishment. And from there... That article was the basis of the book Queen's Reign Supreme that Ethan Brown had pitched. And I helped him with the book proposal. I negotiated my terms with the contract. He was with ICM. I got 25% of the gross across the board. I did all of that with no lawyer, you know? Yeah. And um, we did the book. And then I did a piece in King Magazine about Fat Cat. I wrote that. Datuan Thomas was the editor at the time. And um, we worked that out. Again, timing. American Gangster, the series came. BET. BET. And the book had came out in 2005. So by 2006, um, I was working 
on American Gangster series because the book, being that it was published by Random House and Ethan was the author, I hate to say, but I got to say, there's nothing like white validation to increase the value of whatever we're doing. Mm -hmm. You you see what I'm saying? So Nelson George, who was the executive producer or whatever for American Gangster, he was working with Asylum Entertainment, they reached out to Ethan because he wrote the book. But Ethan don't know nothing about what's in the book. You see, I would have never gotten the book deal. Ethan got it. He didn't know nothing about the subject matter. I walked him through that, got him all the interviews, everything. I had Ethan talking to people in the witness protection program. I gave him the kind of access that he ate off of for a few years. Mm -hmm. He got two more uh, book deals after that. I don't think he's writing books anymore, though. But Nelson George, you know, when he was trying to to do the, the American Gangster thing on Fat Cat... I reached out to him to be in a, you know, a consultant or something. Mm-hmm. He didn't, he wasn't interested. He wanted Ethan. He was kind of snobbish at the time. And he and I, we got cool after that. But initially, he was snobbish on the phone. Mm-hmm. A lot of uppity Negroes, you know what I mean? They get in these white spaces and, you know, you can't tell them nothing. <laughs> That's just the bottom line. But uh, <laughs> look, look. But Bill Stephanie, Stephanie from Stepson Records. Mm-hmm. He got at Nelson for me. And somebody had put me in touch with Bill. I never met Bill. He just threw me the assist. At any time, he could call me and get a payback. You understand what I'm saying? Because that's the other thing. I don't forget people that helped me along the way. Right. So I got, uh, I was a consultant on the Fat Cat episode in the first season. In the second season, I was a co-producer on the Supreme Griff episode. And in the third season, I fully produced a Jamaican Shower Posse episode. Mm. So it slowly... And guess what? They only gave me $2,000 to be the consultant. Oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I put these numbers out there because I want people... Everybody wants to be in entertainment. Mm-hmm. Man, you might as well work at McDonald's. And I try to explain this to people all <laughs> Yo, the time. The entertainment industry is a hustle because Man. people want to be able to say that they're in it. And the industry itself trades on lower... Payments because they know you just want to be down. They want the, you want that clout. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very there are a lot of people in indus- industry, but there are very few people at the top of the food chain. That's right. Who are making all the money? One percent. And, and there are a lot of other people who have a lot of access. They're not necessarily getting the money though. No, they're not. You know, they have the access because they also don't have the content. Mm-hmm. They're waiting for somebody to give them something. Yeah. So you got to create something. You got to add value. You can't wait for somebody to hand you something. And that's not just entertainment. That's everything. See, people think that just because they know somebody or because they black like them or something, they're entitled to something. No, you have to create something. You have to add value in your personal relationships, your business relationships. What value do you add? Mm-hmm. Nobody's honest with that. It's not nobody, but a lot of people aren't. So anyway, I did that. Uh, accrued um, some 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 real credits. Again, I never went to school for production or mm-hmm. anything. And then I turned around and, and and produced my own film. But I got the training I needed to win those for American Gangster. Mm-hmm. Then I did the black, white, and blue film. And how did you finance that? Myself, self. I don't ask nobody for money. I don't get no grants. I don't crowdfund. I don't do none of that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I pay for. I don't have time to wait. And not only that. I'm unemployable. I'm saying it right now. I don't follow directions too good. I do everything. You know, like, I do everything my way, mm-hmm. and I pay for that right. 
It costs to be the boss. I'm going to pay the price. All these people with bright ideas and no money, I don't want to hear nothing. They got to say. You understand? Like, I mean, this is the reality. A lot of people don't they think because they got this degree or their name is so-and-so. Like, who cares? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to lose. If anybody's going to lose this money, it's going to be me. Nobody else. It's my money. I'm going to lose it. Well, I'm going to turn it into something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're welcome to give me some advice uh, if it makes sense. But it, don't expect me to do what you want me to do. Right. And, and, and again, that come from my orientation. I started telling you what I started doing at nine. Right. I've never taken orders. How the hell am I start taking orders now? <laughs> it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? It's, it's not going to happen. I got my first job when I was 34. Wow. And quit when I was 36. Well, you made it longer than I would have expected. Yeah, I mean, I chipped my tooth. It got a cap right here. I was driving a high-low in the, in the machine, and I don't know what happened if I got distracted. I looked in the mirror, and my tooth was chipped, and my mouth was bleeding. And I said, all the things I went through, I ain't get a scar. I go to work, and this happens to me. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so... Yeah, so that, that, that was that. I, yeah, I, I quit after that, man. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so tell me about the work that you're doing in Detroit. Um, making the film, I met Coleman Young II, mm-hmm. the son of Detroit's first black mayor, Coleman Young I. He was mayor for 20 years from 1974 to 1994. And um, when I walked away from him, I interviewed him in Lansing, First of all, the story of how I met Coleman is crazy because I went up to Detroit to film, didn't even know who he was. We went to a radio station with some guy who said he was in the Zulu Nation or whatever, uh, like a 50-something-year-old hip-hopper or something, you know, and, uh, baggy pants and everything. And he was um, said he knew somebody there that wasn't there. They didn't bother. He scheduled an interview for us for a radio host. The person didn't show up. So he told us, I know Senator Young. Um because Senator Young at the time used to tape at the same station, different mm-hmm. studio. So he was calling Senator Young, calling him, calling him, no answer. So one of my assistants was with me. I said, man, get, get, get the number, you call him, just instinctively. And when my assistant called, Senator Young picked right up. Mm-hmm. Again, I didn't plan it. The X Factor, my assistant had a 202 number, Washington, D.C. Senator Young see a 202 number calling him. He's in politics. If Washington calls him, pick up. you pick up. I didn't know that, though, mm-hmm. but it worked in my favor. But I did know that the, the Zulu Nation guy, if he had been calling me, I wouldn't have picked up either. So, you know, I, I did figure that much out. You know what I mean? That, that's why I was like, you get the number and call me. So the next day we were in Lansing and we interviewed him. And when we walked away, I said to myself, he going to run for mayor. And I, I got to be there for him. Um... I sat down one day. I was I was monitoring him from a distance. I didn't even know. I didn't really even talk to him other than interviewing him for the film. But in my mind, I'm already, you know, forecasting. And one day I'm monitoring him and I see that he's on, some guys on the news complaining about the senator didn't pay him $200 for a website on Fox in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And the guy says, and the news reporter said, well, do you think he has the money? And the guy said, well, I have to say no. I was so I was so hurt. I was like, yo, why did he have to do that to him for $200? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what it was. Like, it was so malicious to go out your way to hurt another Black man who's trying to do something. 
I'm sure it was a misunderstanding. So I, the same assistant, I said, yo, reach out to him and reach out to the senator and tell him I'll pay for the website and I'll pay him whatever he's on. Old, right? So next thing you know, I'm involved in the campaign. I become his largest contributor mm-hmm. to the Super PAC. My money. He lost the race and everything, but it started a relationship there. Then I worked with him when he ran for Congress. And I learned a lot about politics. I saw how the Democrats, they ran so many Black candidates to split the Black vote so Rashida Tlaib could get the seat of John Conyers II in the 13th District of Michigan. The 13th District at the time was the second poorest district in America. But we had a Palestinian America in a, in a predominantly Black district talking about Palestine and babies at the border. I'm not going to say those issues aren't important, but why do Black people in the second poorest district in America need to be concerned about what's going on mm-hmm. in Gaza? You understand what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So we don't really vote our interests. I think politics is really local, but the Democratic Party is only concerned with national candidates and issues. And in order for you to get funding, because she was so well-funded, I think she had... Uh, $1.5 which really isn't a lot of money, but it's a lot in Michigan because everything is really cheap in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they ran all those other candidates that had no, no choice. You know, again, Detroit is a funny place. Just to go back a little bit, when Coleman ran for mayor, four of the eight candidates had felonies and two wow. of them did pres- uh, prison time. Wow. So it's a different world mm-hmm. over there, you know? And um, so I've been working with Coleman closely since then. And now we're doing... Um, STEM after-school program. Uh, myself and, and, and Raul, who I call Dutchie. Friend of the show and former yes, guest. Yes, yes, yes. Who happens to be here today as well. Shout out to Dutch. <laughs> yeah, D- D- Dutch has been amazing. Um, when Coleman was running for Congress, Dutch actually flew out to Detroit and was on the ground with me out there. And um, I respect commitment. Mm-hmm. And I do. I absolutely do. I'm very dismissive of talkers, but if you're putting in work, you got my attention. So after he lost and all that, me and Dutch took Coleman and his mother to dinner, and, and Dutch was very interested in expanding upon what was going on over there, and we still rocking together. So now we're doing a um, STEM after-school program. Uh, you know, people can visit CAY2Foundation.org to find out what it's all about, and we want to we want to help kids in Detroit learn science, technology, engineering, and math. Mm-hmm. Why STEM? Because technology is the future with automation and artificial intelligence Absolutely. and robotics. And I want to see our kids compete. And, you know, after they get like 16, 17 years old, somebody else can help them. I ain't got the patience. I try to catch them young, you know what I mean? As young as possible. Before they get indoctrinated with all this other stuff, these documentaries on Netflix and all that, you know, I, I want them when our kids need to, they need to be able to compete. Mm-hmm. If we can't compete as a people, we're done. We're, we're really done. You know, while everybody's trying to be entertainers, a lot of other communities, you know, some of them, I mean, they get caught up too, but a lot of them are doing the work that's necessary to prepare for the future and keep their community stable. Mm-hmm. And Either we're going to make up our mind that there is no community or make a serious commitment to maintaining the community, you know? Mm-hmm. It ain't going to just happen talking about reparations and all that stuff. Somebody got to do the work. And I just want to make sure them kids, 
get a shot. I hope that what we do can add on to other people doing things. By no means do I think we're the only ones doing um, profound, significant things for Black youth. But I want to add on and, and, and share as much, much of the um, outcomes with people and the knowledge as possible. You know, um, even with that, there are people that came to us and said, you need to just focus on um, basic math and reading. And I'm like, man, it's 2020. Y'all don't got basic math and reading skills down yet. Right. You, you understand what I'm saying? How long are we going to focus on basic math and reading? Like, I mean, not that it's not needed, but while we're focusing on basic math and reading and the, and the competition is focusing on STEM, what, where are you going with the basic math mm-hmm. and reading? You got to get that together. Even if you do that at home with your mom and dad, by the time you come to this program, can you at least be ready to learn how to do something and financial literacy and all these things? We basically want to just help help the youth. It's not just for black youth, but by default, Detroit is an 85% black city. Right. So it's pretty much for black youth. But no, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not just for any specific race. But I like Detroit because it's the blackest city. And I think if we set an example there of how things can work, of how we can help each other rather than petitioning the government all the time, waiting on some politician to promise us something that's never coming, that what we do in Detroit could possibly be a template to be replicated around the country. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. So shifting gears a bit, tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Man, man, do you, I don't think people understand what it's like to wake up and find out the whole world think you killed an icon. Mm-hmm. And it, I've been in a lot of situations, and I can clearly tell you that when you know you did something, it's easier to deal with it than when you know you didn't. Because mm-hmm. when you know you did something, you have an idea how to cover your tracks and protect yourself. But when you know you didn't do it, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know what adjustments to make. You don't know where you're vulnerable. You don't know anything. It's just like it's like you're out there blindfolded and people are shooting at you and you don't know where the shots are coming from. Mm-hmm. So that I definitely had to be extraordinary to deal with that. Yeah. Because I was at the lowest point in my um in my financial life. Ironically, all the money I had had previously, even back to being a kid, I had nothing at that time. Mm. I had nothing at that time because I was going through a transition of trying to reinvent myself. And it's it's um it's real difficult, right? If all you've been doing is wrong in your life, mm-hmm. your network consists of people who do wrong. Right. So if you decide you want to do right, who are you ch- if I wanted to commit any kind of criminal activity, I could have just picked up the phone. <laughs> From counterfeiting to what? You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? But if I want to do right, who am I going to pick up the phone and call? So I was going through it, but I knew that I had to um, change my life around. And um, as a result, I didn't have no money whatsoever. And um, again, things worked out. A friend rec- uh, recommended... Marvin Kornberg. Kornberg costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He had represented Justin Volpe, the cop who molested um, Abner Luima. He had represented the cops who uh, 
shot Amadou Diallo 41 times in the Bronx. So he handled a lot of big cases. And uh, my boy who recommended him, he had used him. So when I called Kornberg, I told him, again, I'm I'm unorthodox. I said, listen, Kornberg, I don't have no money. I said, all I need you to do is go with me for questioning. That's it. My experience with the law made me understand that I just needed a lawyer with me so they couldn't say I did. I admitted the things I didn't admit. I was prepared to go to jail, just sit down and have to deal with it then. And Kornberg charged me $1,000. And I got Marvin Kornberg for $1,000. And I'm sure he was taking cases for at least sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 back then, at least. But I told him all I needed was him to walk with me to the precinct, sit there for questioning. And he took the bait because he wanted that attention. High profile. Yes. Mm-hmm. He wanted his name. And he got a lot of, you know, he got some mileage out of it. He called me about two years ago to talk about the case because um, Marsha Clark was doing a documentary and had talked to him. And you want to talk about white privilege? She lost the biggest case she should have won. And she's, she's still getting work. You understand what I'm saying? Like, like, how is this woman getting any work? I mean, you lost the damn case. But uh, anyway, yeah, Marshall Clark was doing a, a thing on, on, on Jay. And Kornberg called me to see if I would do it. I said, no, nah, I don't want to do nothing. Because they had reached out to me. I said, look, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker too. Give me some production credit. Mm-hmm. I hope y'all out. I'll give y'all the blueprint. I, I'll help y'all crack the case. You know what I mean? They're not interested, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But, but anyway, yeah, that, that was it for me. And um, I went through my, my little situation with that. And they never even uh, questioned me. When the day came to question me, they, Cornberg called their bluff. He told them if they wanted to question me, they had to charge me. And they called back about an hour later and said they didn't have nothing. They should have never put my name out there in the first place. Did you have any sort of internal dilemma about using this lawyer who had represented those cops in such a nah. high-profile, racially charged nah, case? No. Nah, nah. Nope. It's all business. Mm-hmm. I'm not emotional about anything. I kind of knew who he was, understood. Um, I He asked me certain questions. Um, I gave him an account that wasn't 100% accurate, and I saw the same account in the New York Post, written by Murray Weiss. Mm-hmm. So I knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I go into every... I don't trust nobody. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. You think I really trusted him to help me? For what? I have no value to him. Mm-hmm. He's going to protect the relationships where he can keep getting paid down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Even when he even when he forced uh, the play, saying um, he's not bringing me in unless they charge me. I don't know if that was in my best interest at all, mm-hmm. but it worked out that way. Sometimes things do. I think I'm blessed and highly favored, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why I really try to do good and be right, you know? Because I, I got a lot of breaks in life, a lot, a whole lot. So, yeah. You definitely have several lives within the criminal justice system. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 didn't, I didn't trust him. I don't trust any of them, man. Uh, I was in, in Nassau County one time, and they did a lineup, said that they didn't have guys in my height. And this is with paid lawyers. So we did the lineup sitting down, and they didn't pick me out. So after they didn't pick me out, they wanted us to say something to see if they could recognize the voice because they say I got a distinguished uh, voice or whatever. After that, you know, once they don't pick you out in the lineup, you're good to go because... 
it's not you. Mm-hmm. I'm six four. The suspect was five ten. I should have never been in a lineup. They were, my lawyer wasn't looking after my interests, mm-hmm. and I was paying them. I mean, so I'm aware of racism. I'm aware of how people just take our money and, and move on to the next one. I'm aware of all these things. I just don't harp on it. I can't be disappointed by people I don't expect much from in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So what's next on the horizon for Curtis School? Man, I would love for Coleman to run for mayor next year mm-hmm. and win. But he hasn't made a commitment to that. We still got time. We got we got 20 months, but who's counting? You know? Yeah. That's it? So just politics? That's all That's all you want to talk about? Because I'm sure there's other things well, on the horizon. Well, to me, right, yeah. as, a, as a business person, mm-hmm. uh, I see the connection between politics and business. I kind of feel policy, government policy, affects every industry and business. So I need to get into the source rather than being at the mercy of people who write the policy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, politics is definitely where it starts for me mm-hmm. because I can't really have the kind of power and influence that I'm looking for if I don't have political um, access. Because mm-hmm. when you don't have, I mean, they change zoning uh, laws and everything. And your business could go from a bust to a boom or from a boom to a bust. Mm-hmm. I need to have that kind of protection and not just be out here on a wing and a prayer all the time, you know? So, yeah, there's a lot of things I want to do in Detroit on a business level. Detroit seems to be a, what I would imagine a city at the turn of the 20th century was like. I don't even think they have a comedy club in Detroit. Mm. They need everything. We had to go to Staples to pick up some um, stationery and had to leave the city, literally, across the street to the suburbs <laughs> to go to Staples. I mean, they have nothing, mm. nothing. So um, there's opportunity in chaos, and it's definitely a chaotic um, environment there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About 700,000 people with a capacity of 2 million, a lot of empty homes, right. a lot of corruption, a lot of rebuilding. I don't have enough money to play ball in Manhattan, mm-hmm. you know, not even close. Not that I got a lot of money, because I don't, but I got enough to play ball in Detroit, though. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, I can't wait to hear the feedback on this interview. Um, so you mentioned the foundation. Yeah. Where else can people find you online? You have your podcast. I know you, you have your hands in a lot. Yeah, I got my podcast at Schoon TV, uh, uh, iTunes, and um, SoundCloud, and YouTube. S-C-O-O-N is in Nancy TV, no spaces, Schoon TV. Um, you can find me on Twitter, too. I was recently suspended from Curtis Schoon on Twitter. They don't like my politics there too much, <laughs> you know. And I just can't help myself. I speak my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't need nobody for nothing. So they get mad too bad. You know, but, uh, yeah, but, um, and and that's it. You know, um, I'm working on a, a documentary right now. I don't want to say the title. Mm-hmm. And it's covering Coleman, following him in his transformation. And I'm hoping that it ends when he gets elected. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And I got a title for it. So I'm always working. I got these my plans and stuff are layered, multi-tiered. And if I don't see some of it, all of it, some of it happens mm-hmm. all the time. I never know what I'm going to do. I didn't know I was going to be uh, in mental health in 2009. I didn't know that. Um 
I was selling DVDs in a parking lot in Georgia. And uh, a guy who I had known from D.C., who I hadn't seen in about 15 years, he had become an ordained minister and a licensed social worker. Mm -hmm. And he was with his, some girl he was dating, and they was in the parking lot where I sold DVDs. He was living on a, another side of town at the time. And he told me, he said he told his girl, that's New York Kurt. You know, that's what they call <laughs> He said, man, he be getting money. And his girl said, baby, are you sure? That's the DVD, man. You know what I mean? Like, I was about to ask, were you selling your own DVD no, masterpiece style or literally, literally like the dude selling, that comes to the barbershop? No. Listen, I was out there and they was, they would pull up, you know, out they, you know, they love Medea down there. Man, I owe Tyler Perry so much money. They would pull up, they'd be like, DVD, hustle man, you got that new Medea. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> got that Medea go to jail, you know, and uh Man, I was a fixture in the community down there, man. I sell them DVDs. A uh, dude from New York worked in the record store. He used to call me Supreme Clientele because I would sell DVDs, right? And then take the money and go to New York and work on the docu uh, American Gangster. I even took DVD money and went to see Tito Trinidad fight Winky Wright in Vegas and was sitting ringside, you know what I mean? Like you know, The irony of you working in TV but selling bootleg oh, material man. is off the Listen, charts. But anyway... <laughs> Listen, they told me they was bootlegging my documentary in Miami. I said, charge it to the game, man. Yeah, exactly. You know, look, look, for sure. Well, listen, DeMarcus told me this was going to be an interesting interview. Yeah. It might have been the understatement of 2020 so far. Well, thank you. <laughs> look, the year just started. Just you know, started. Look, look. But I'm going to be watching. I'm going to see what happens in Detroit. Okay. Um, and we are deeply committed to philanthropy here and youth enrichment especially. So I'm particularly excited about the work you're doing with the youth. Okay. Um, so best wishes there. Thank we'll, you. We'll be staying on the pulse of what's happening All right. with the being that is Curtis School. Because okay. you're in a class by yourself. That's okay. for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> to our listeners, uh, you heard it here. Schoon TV, CAY2foundation.com. Yes, the number Not two. CAY2, yep. So if you want to hear more of Curtis's colorful opinions yes. uh, and unique opinions on a number of matters. Check him out online. Hopefully they'll let him out of Twitter jail soon. This you is my sixth <laughs> time. It ain't happening. I'm gone. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this interview, or even if you just want to talk about it, like, share, subscribe, make sure you promote it. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.